Impact Lab is powered by Impact Tap, sharing social good through new media. Tap in at theimpacttap.com. If you had told me five years ago that this is how America would learn what a gold star family was, I, I would have said you were crazy. That's the voice of Amy Nyberger-Miller. Amy is a PR expert and founder of Stepping Stone LLC, a Washington, D.C.-based firm that provides communication solutions for nonprofit organizations. She has extensive experience working in youth development as well as advocacy supporting military families. On the morning of October 4th, four U.S. soldiers were killed in an ambush in Niger. It took days for Trump to respond to the incident. This sparked debate on a number of topics, including the politicization of Gold Star families. But while pundits spar back and forth, there are a number of urgent issues that must be addressed on behalf of veterans, from healthcare access to suicide prevention. Amy is among the professionals working to make a difference in the lives of veterans and their families. She joined Key Elements Group LLC President and CEO Lynette Zimmerman to discuss her life as an entrepreneur and her work with military families. As our listeners heard in the introduction, you are a PR and communications expert uh, who works with nonprofits. And I am eager to hear about how you arrived at this point. I know you help a number of professionals who support uh, trauma victims as part of their work. And I understand your own background has informed your priorities and interests as a consultant. Well, I would say that I came to this work because ultimately I wanted for what I did and for what I poured my life's effort into to really make a difference and matter and to make the world a better place. And I know that sounds really idealistic, um, but that was really my motivation for doing that. Um, I actually originally was training to become an academic historian. I was planning to be a history professor or a teacher for the rest of my life. And I ended up becoming an op-ed columnist for a small newspaper uh, in a college town. And I figured out pretty quickly that more people read me every day in the newspaper than would probably ever read me, read anything I ever wrote in academic history. Um, and that I, I wanted to look for other ways to do something. And so I started um, volunteering with Habitat for Humanity locally, um, managed public relations for them as a volunteer for many, many years um, for a local Habitat affiliate and also got involved in a number of other causes and projects, um, which eventually evolved into youth development work, uh, which eventually turned into, um, you know, working on behalf of nonprofits and starting our practice 15 years ago. Oh, that's great. What a natural progression. I'm glad you found, uh, found your niche as a writer. I'm curious about how you were able to transform Stepping Stone LLC during it such a time of crisis, you know, following a family tragedy, the company experienced a downturn. Uh, were there particular strategies as a business owner that helped you move past the rough spots? Uh, was it personal drive or a combination of some things? Well, about five years after I started my business, uh, my brother was killed in combat in Iraq while we were on vacation with our older children. We were at the beach. And so I immediately went from being on vacation to um, being with my family in response to that. Um, you know, we had a large public 
funeral in Florida. We had another one near my home uh, at Arlington National Cemetery um, here in the D.C. area. Um, and then uh, the day after my brother's funeral at Arlington, my husband actually had emergency surgery on our wedding anniversary. Um, and so, um, you know, I was pretty much completely spent at that point. Um, and literally all of that took place within 11 days. Um, and so it's taken, I think, a long time to um, recover from all of that. At the same time, I would say for our business, it, it was a challenge. Um, our clients thought we were on vacation at the beach with our family. Some of them found out from press coverage that this terrible tragedy had happened to our family. Um, some of them were concerned about us. Um, you know, many of my clients sent flowers to the funeral and different things. Um, and then on top of that, as literally as soon as this was over, uh, one of us was seriously ill and had to, you know, do a significant recovery. Um, and so some of our workload did really dry up um, at that point in our careers. And I remember going back into my office about two weeks after everything had happened and thinking, okay, I'm just going to sit here and write out these proposals. Somehow I had gotten two requests for proposals in, in that time frame um, for work. And I thought, you know, I'll just do these. They'll be a great act of therapy. They'll just get me writing and dreaming about things that could be what we could do for these people. And we'll just see where it goes. And I, I honestly thought we would never get either one of them. Um, and it ended up we were offered both of those jobs. Oh, wow. That's incredible. Yeah. Which is incredible because, as you know, I'm sure as an entrepreneur, I mean, you don't bat 100% when you yeah. write proposals. You don't. The <laughs> odds are against you. Solicited, yeah. And so, um, you know, it was really surprising. We were offered that work, and so that was the work we started with. Um, and then I, I kind of believe that you find the work that you're meant to do and that that work might even find you. And so I was at this point in my life where I really wanted to do more work to support military families. Um, I found out about an organization called TAPS, Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors, and I contacted them for some support for myself in coping with the death of my brother. But I also said to them, you know, I have a background working with groups that deal with trauma, and I would like to, you know, see if I could, you know, do some work with you all in some way, either as a volunteer or on staff. And and they were very open to that idea, welcomed me into their community, and I um, worked with them for about eight years, um, which was a very long time um, to do that um, and to work in that kind of environment where you're working with a lot of people who've been grieving and going through have gone through a lot of trauma themselves. Um, and it's very rewarding work, but can also be very draining work. Um, and so in the meantime, I also was building the rest of my practice back up. Um, we had new work coming in for both of us to do. And, um, you know, I was also doing more work in the military family and veteran space. And so as a result, um, you know, I, I am more known now probably for, for that type of work than for what I did early on in my career. Um, but for me, it's been, you know, a very rewarding experience. I feel like I've been given these opportunities um, to, to make a difference and have a voice and speak out to support families and to support veterans and to support this great community. And, and to me, that's a privilege. Let's talk a little bit more about your work with military families. You just touched on it, and I understand you have 
you know, worked shaping news coverage relating to veteran suicides. Uh, you mentioned trauma earlier, but let's let's focus on on veteran suicides for a minute here, uh, which has been an ongoing problem for years, among other pressing issues. How are you uniquely positioned to engage in this work, and how do you see your role evolving in the coming years? Well, I think for for where I'm positioned to do this work is that within our TAPS community, we had a large number of families grieving deaths by suicide. And it became very apparent that we really needed to work with journalists to implement best practices in reporting about suicide. That, you know, there's actual research done on media reporting around suicide that we could point to. Um, There's messaging that we could talk about with them about how things are phrased when the press cover a death by suicide so that, you know, there are not additional deaths caused by through contagion and so that people are educated more um, about mental health issues and about, you know, how do you get help Um, talking about how treatment can work. You know, I think that's something that's really important. Um, And I do think that for people who have suffered and, and gone through a horrific loss to um, to be able to share their story in a way that helps other people understand an issue, helps other people understand the illness that took their loved one. And, you know, that gives meaning back to that person. There's something very empowering about that. Um, and so I do some other training now around sharing your story Um, with some other organizations and help people, you know, think about, you know, how do you talk about things in your life that are really hard and how do you glean some knowledge from that? Is there something there that could help someone else? And how do you also take care of yourself when you're doing that? I mean, those are, those are really important questions. And I do think I'm a little different in the field simply because not because I, you know, lost a loved one to suicide, but because I have had to deal with, some of the other issues around what is private and going out into the public eye. What is that like? Um, you know, I've had to make decisions about um, should I permit a photographer near my home or at my house? Um, is it okay for a photographer who's stalking us at the cemetery to take pictures of my newborn baby? Um, I've had things like that happen. And so I I understand sometimes, you know, the on the one hand, people have a desire, I think, to be understood and to be heard. At the same time, when you're grieving, you lose some of your barriers and some of the, you might accept things that at another point in life you would not have. And so I think you, we also have to help people think through the consequences of that. If I'm going to share lots of my family photos with the press because they're doing a story about my loved one or about this topic, well, do I really want all of them out there for forever, or is it better to share only a handful so that you know some things are more private for us as a family? Is it you know how do you handle that? How do you structure that? And you know I don't approach it as you know everybody has to be like me or that everybody has to be like somebody else. I I think you have to do what feels right for you, and that you intuitively will will have a good sense of that. And that you should also get some good guidance on what are the choices available to you. And so we'll outline those and talk about that um, for somebody who suffered something and, and say, you know, look, you know, there may not be a great choice here. These are the options and this is how we think it will go. These are 
the choices you have. And, and I try to give people back a sense of that power of control of their own life, because so often when something tragic has happened to somebody, they've lost all control of their life. They've lost the feeling of control. And I, I think if by giving them information, by helping them think through how they share a story, we can give them back a little piece of that and that's stabilizing for them. Let's talk about messaging. Uh, you've hit on a number of points here, but I, I wanna focus on this for a minute. Uh, <clears throat> when you talk about messaging for journalists, uh, what are you really saying here? Like, what are what are you giving them as guidelines? How are you helping them frame the story? Well, for example, on reporting about suicide, there are a set of best practices in reporting on that topic that are issued by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention that are research-based, that are developed um, with a, a lot of thought and knowledge, and they they do expend a good amount of time, I think, trying to educate reporters on how to talk about that. And for me, I've also been involved with some workshops at Columbia University, with workshops through the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma, where we really talk about how do you think about these issues, how do you report on veterans' issues, how do you report on survivor issues, which has certainly been in the media a lot over the last couple of weeks. Um, with reporting around Gold Star families, and how do you talk about grief in the public space and suicide? It's one thing for me to sit down with someone who's going to do an interview and review with them, okay, you have three or four key points that you really want to make in the interview um, that you want to share. Um, it's a very different situation when we talk with a reporter about, well, you know, is there a way to cover this story in a way that's honest and fair and accurate and appropriate? but to also support best practices around messaging around suicide. Is there a way to do that? And could we find a way to do that? And there's times that reporters will reject some of that advice or ideas, or um, and there's times that I'll get emails from reporters and they will say, oh, I looked at those best practices. Um, I'm gonna try to do some of that if I can, I, but I really appreciate that this information was shared because it opened my eyes to some things I didn't know. Um, you know, and I, I think you have to have some dialogue there if you're trying to influence actually how a story is reported. Um, you know, and that's very different because in PR, typically when we talk about messaging, we're talking about how do you visualize, you know, your message. You might be visualizing a square or a triangle or three or four points that you really want to make. And we practice and practice with the person being interviewed how they're going to make those points, how they're going to deliver them, how they're going to respond. And there's, it's a double-sided street, right? Because it's not only how the peer person being interviewed responds, it's also how the journalist interprets that. And I, I think we, if you're an advocate on an issue, I, I think you, know, you, you can't just do one side. You should also have a dialogue with journalists, a respectful dialogue about you know, how do we talk about these issues in a public space and in a way that's safe and appropriate. Um, you know, so that we could perhaps even save lives and educate people. And we're also sharing good information and sharing what happened. Your work with the, the families, those that may be interviewed um, for a particular story, how does that uh, work with your business? Is that part of the organizations that you serve or is that an additional service you provide? Um, typically, I'm working with an organization that has 
a need to do training for people who've gone through some kind of trauma to um, share in the press or they have people that they work with that they're supporting who are the subject of media interest and those people need advice um, on how to navigate that and how to manage that. Um, and so usually I'm brought in to do training and to work with people one-on-one, -on -one, um, you know, because, you know, many organizations recognize that there are, you know, one of the most powerful ways to share the story of how they've assisted someone is through a person who they've assisted. Um, you know, I'm muddling this up, sorry. But, um, you know, I think a lot of organizations realize people understand the impact of their work when they hear someone talk about, here's how my life was changed through this organization. Here's what they did for me. And, and that has staying power. It's not just dwelling on the struggle of what the person went through, but it's also talking about the triumph of what the person has achieved and how the person is moving forward in life. You know, many people carry, you know, very hard things through life. And, um, you know, I'm continually amazed at some of the strength of some of the people that I meet who have truly reached the very bottom of what life can give out. And then they come back again and they rebuild their lives and do something new and amazing. And, and it's an incredible thing to watch and to also hear them share their stories, you know, to hear them say, you know what, here's where I was in life. Things were going pretty bad. And then I got involved in this or this happened for me and suddenly, you know, and now things are much better, you know, and getting to see people do that is really an amazing tribute and a wonderful blessing for me, um, you know, because I can really be inspired. I do find training sometimes to be a little tiring, um, but at the same time, it's, it's also very energizing and inspiring. Well, I'm certain it drives you to continue your, your work with others. So that is... That is positive in itself. Uh, you mentioned uh, recent media, Gold Star Families. Uh, let's let's talk about that. Uh, it's relevant. It's uh, something that recently happened. Give me your take. Well, I mean, I, I would say, I mean, my family. We are a Gold Star family ourselves, and um, you know, I've talked with a lot of families where they've had struggles within what I'd call the casualty assistance process after their loved one died. Um, it's very easy to misinterpret things and it's also very easy for people to say things that offend you, frankly. Um, I've been to many support groups for military families grieving a death and it's very common for us to talk about um, things that people said to us that offended us. Not just official people who called us um, or wrote to us, but um, people who we know, even even our some of our own friends and people that we know in our daily lives, um, who sometimes would say things that just really were not appropriate or that really hurt. And um, it, you know, I would say it's if you had told me five years ago that this is how America would learn what a gold star family was, I I would have said you were crazy. You know, something like that wouldn't happen, but um, it, it is how it's happened. And I do think it has brought more attention onto what is a Gold Star family, the fact that there are thousands of these families around the country. Um, and I think it also has opened us up to talk a little bit more about grief. You know, the death of a service member is a traumatic loss. Um, the people who die are young. They're in 
good health usually. They're at the prime of life, and then they're taken often in a violent way and very suddenly. And so you're grieving not only the fact that they died, but also the, all those years that you won't get with them because they're often young. And so I think for many families, you know, navigating those days after the funeral can be very hard. The days after you've been notified are, are just terrible days to go through. Um, and, and I recall them as some of the most painful ones of my life. And to see, you know, a family in kind of a media maelstrom, as we've seen recently, I, I has also been really hard. It's just made me heart sick to see it because I, I can't imagine going through what some of these families have gone through with the level of press attention on them that's been there. Um, you know, but I'm also hopeful, though, that this makes us think a little more about how we talk about grief and loss in the public space. Our country doesn't talk about um, death or grieving very well. Um, we tend to talk about grief as if, well, you, after you had your funeral, you're done with that now. And, and the reality is grief lasts a lifetime. It will surge again off and on throughout your life. What changes is your ability to manage it. And for you know these new families, that journey is going to be long, and it's going to be you know whatever it is, um, but it's it, it, much of it will be in private. And many people say that you know it's it's many months after the funeral when families really need care and support, um, and that's when families need to hear words of love and support, and and for people just to not judge how they feel because grief can be you know very isolating. Um, often people feel that you know they shouldn't feel the way they do. Maybe you shouldn't feel angry because your loved one died a hero to their country. Well, you can still be a little angry if you want to be. You know that's okay um, because you know this was you know a, a difficult thing to go through. Um, and so for a lot of families, I think it it comes down to how do we figure out how to go forward and also honor our loved one. I think ultimately what families want is for their loved one to be remembered for their service and their sacrifice. Do you think this recent um, surge of media attention on Gold Star families will continue? Do you believe this to be a, a conversation starter? I'm not sure it will continue. I mean, we've, you know, the nation's been at war for a very long time. Um, and, you know, our families are out there and in the community. I do think there's more awareness of what a Gold Star family is. Um, and I, I do see families quite often are more comfortable now publicly identifying themselves as a gold star family. Um, many families have license tags on their cars if their state issues them and they're eligible for them, or we'll put a bumper sticker there or um, might wear a special piece of jewelry or something that they'll wear. So people might ask them about it. Um, that, and, you know, I think for everyone, it's, there's no rule book for how to do this, right? Like there's no rule book that says, when my daughter is five years old and has ballet recital and gets upset because her little friend um, got flowers from her Uncle Chris and my daughter starts crying because her Uncle Chris is dead and she doesn't have any flowers. And that actually happened. Um, you know, there's no rule book for how to, to manage all of that. Or if we go to an event 10 years after my brother died, Am I supposed to still wear black? Am I supposed to stay in mourning for the rest of my life? Are all of the rest of us supposed to do that too? 
you know? I mean, there's there's a fine line here that, you know, we're all trying to find of what's comfortable for us and what honors our loved ones. Um, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, part of being a Gold Star family is there is a public attention that can come to the family because there's a public meaning associated with the death of their loved one. And that is something that can be very hard for families. It's definitely very different from when someone else in your family passes away, you know. Um, is this an opportunity to increase the amount of communication that is that is going on on the topic and and for your firm to seize the opportunity to really help others and open up the gateways? I would say there's an opportunity not for my firm, but for America to better understand Gold Star families. Um, also because so many of our families for these current wars have also moved forward a bit in their loss and are at a point where they're able to talk and share publicly and you know are able to do that in a way that they're comfortable, that they might not have been right after their loved one died. Um, I would say that there's a big opportunity for America to understand Gold Star families and to reach out to us, to talk to us, um, you know, to ask us about our loved ones. I think sometimes people think that if they bring it up that they might make us sad or upset us. And, and actually, I lo we like to talk about them quite often, you know. Um, I, I mean, I can't speak for everyone, but I would say a, a lot of people will say to me, I really appreciate when someone asks me about my loved one who died and, and asks how they lived. You know, and, and for us, I think even for me, I would I like for people to remember how my brother lived, that he lived a life of service to other people, that he really cared about other people, um, that he was funny and smart, and that he loved coffee and beer, that he was a really wonderful person. You know, I, I would rather he be remembered for how he lived for 22 years than for the few milliseconds that it took for him to die. Oh, what a great conversation and so many... Uh, ongoing conversations to have. Uh, thank you so much, Amy. Uh, one last question before we uh, end our time together today. You know, we all have influencers in our lives, those who have made a, an impact on us and has shaped uh, the way we think and, and move throughout our daily activities. Uh, who are those people to you? I think for me, a few of my influencers would be other women who've worked in public relations who were a little further along in their careers, who took me under their wing early on, um, and we've all stayed friends. Um, there's a group of us who all worked uh, within the 4-H system in youth development for many years together, and those friendships have stuck. Like, we're still all friends, um, even though we've all moved on to other organizations and other projects. Um, one of my friends from that time period, she and I even do consulting together off and on with different clients. When I'm out of town, my dog stays at her house. Um, you know, it's that kind of friendship. And I think they've been really important to me. I also think that some of the other people within our Independent Public Relations Alliance, we actually have a, a small group within the PRSA National Capital Chapter here in the D.C. area of independent consultants. And... Some of those people were also very influential in helping me understand how to better manage my business, how to better market myself, 
Um, I'd say I've learned a lot from them. Unlike many independent PR consultants, I did not come from a PR agency background. I had always worked for organizations uh, and nonprofit agencies. And so for me, going into being an entrepreneur was a very different experience because I had no experience in how to market myself or how to service the client account once it was one. I knew how to keep somebody happy and how to you know, keep up with their needs and how to structure a PR plan and things like that. But I really learned a lot on the job early on in my business about how to write good proposals, how to follow up with clients, how to market the business. And those were skills that I had not really learned prior to that. Um, because I had had very traditional employment where you send in your resume and you interviewed for a job and you were offered it and then you did the job. Um, and so this was, it was very different. Um, but I would say if, if someone is out there who wants to try to go into consulting work, you know, look for the people out there who will give you good advice, who will help you figure out, you know, how should you bill for your services? How do you structure your billable hours if you're working that way or your project-based hours if you're working in that way? Um, How do you structure all of that? How do you juggle client work and personal life? You know, there's a lot that all of us can learn and we can learn really well together. Um, I think sometimes people who are new to consulting feel like they should keep some of their ideas secret because they don't want anybody else to steal them. And um, by and large, what I've found is that there's a lot of people out there doing uh, consulting work who have a lot of great wisdom to share and they can really help you be better. Well, that's wonderful advice. Uh, thank you for sharing with our listeners and thank you for joining us today, Amy. It's been a tremendous conversation and we are so grateful to have connected with you and uh you know, we'll end the conversation here with uh, one last question. How do people get in touch with you? How do they find you? Well, one of the easiest ways to find us is to go to our website, steppingstonellc.com, or you can follow me on Twitter at AmazingPRMaven. I have a little over 7,500 followers now, which I always find a little surprising um, that there's so many followers who seem to want to follow me, but um, I do put out quite a bit of information in the form of blog posts and a lot of different tweets and things on different issues, Um, and I try to offer information that's helpful. Wonderful. Thanks again, Amy. Thank you.